I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, I'm Mike Boris, and this is Straight Talk. The previous world record was 30 hours and 11 minutes. Yeah, I did 40 hours and seven minutes. <laughs> Just like the idea of seeing what's possible. Blake Johnson, what a legend this guy is. Now the longest serving session in the world. It was five, six foot straight closeouts. So constant ways was hard work. So I was working a lot harder than I anticipated. Are you exhausted? I was cooked by the time the first sunrise came up. How do you manage that so you don't get overwhelmed? I think it's drawing on past experiences. My dad took his own life 10 years ago. I look back and, and think of some things he, that he, he missed out on, you know, like he was obviously a very self, selfless man that put his family first and to a point that it was detrimental to his own mental health. You know, when you see progress and, and set goals and go after certain things, that you become a better version of yourself along the way. Blake Johnson, welcome to Straight Talk. Thanks for having me. Mate, I know she got no shoes on. Uh, it's freezing fucking cold outside. Uh, tell me the deal. Do you not normally wear shoes? I, I don't I wear really... shoes very often. It's been, really? been my whole life down the beach, so just, you know, just evolved from that. Are you comfortable no shoes, like walking around the street, yeah. like cold days, hot days, whatever? Yeah, totally. Totally adapted to it. It was by accident. I hurt myself surfing in Desert Point in Indonesia about four or five years ago. And I was training for a marathon, my first marathon, and then the, the wound just wouldn't heal. You know, they get ulcerated and wouldn't heal. So I went to put sh- shoes on and run in Bali because I was training and it just bled out. So I just took them off, ran on the treadmills, got home expecting to put shoes on, middle of winter, and then just did the same thing. The wound hadn't healed because I was surfing so much and um, just went barefoot through winter and then ended up doing the marathon barefoot. Uh, like, a, like a running marathon? Like a yeah, the, Sydney, the yeah. Sydney marathon. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, did that with – um. Did no shoes, no food, no water, no supplements, and just just tried to test myself as much as I could. So you like to push yourself. Um, do, like that's yeah. that's your deal. Yeah. You're a Cronulla born and bred. Yeah. Like, or the Shire boy. Yeah. Shire born and bred. Cronulla yep. Yep. or some other part. No, Cronulla. Cronulla yep. itself. Never more than so. Dad was a builder, so we were never more than five minutes. We did a few renovations growing up with five with four brothers. So I was always a bit mayhem, but always really close to the shore. So I spent, yeah. Every minute I could down the beach. So how'd you how'd you first? Your dad was a surfer. Dad was. I'm, a surfer. I'm getting it. And mum? Not mum. No. No, not mum. She was from Miranda, a few suburbs back. A bit different. Miranda's a bit different to Cronulla. It's a little bit, especially back then. Yeah. It, it wasn't. It wasn't quite looked at the same. <laughs> yeah. I, I can say that my parents moved to Cronulla after I moved out of home, but my parents moved to Cronulla, so I got a bit of an idea about Cronulla. My brother and sister grew up there. Yeah. My younger brother and sister grew up there. 
Um, it was a bit different back then, of course. Uh, in those days, uh, the strip in uh, Cronulla, the shopping centre, the strip there. I remember there was a bloody, there was a place where, there was a fish and chip shop. Um, I don't know if it's still there, but what we used to do when I used to go surfing, we, especially in the cold days, we used to go in there, we'd go to the next door into the joint buy a loaf of bread, but it wasn't cut, it was not sliced, unsliced bread, pull, pull the guts out and uh, go into the fish and chip shop and uh, get a f- uh, get a bag of chips, stuff the chips into the loaf of bread, <laughs> and that was our that was our meal after uh, we'd been surfing Epic. for hours and hours and hours. So that sort of stuff still go on. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Groms are always down on the each corner shop getting their hot chips between their surfs. But even from when I grew up, it's a bit different now. People are just rocking up. You know, there's so many parents that do so much for their kids. You know, we weren't super raw, but we were. We had a lot of freedom. You know. Just living near the beach, popping down to the fish and chip shop and doing yeah. a similar thing to you, you know. But yeah, it well, has changed well, a little bit in that well, sense. Well, I was allowed to travel. Like, like my, my parents didn't give a shit. They like, never, never thought, oh, where's Mark? I'd get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, I'd catch a train in. they walk from Cronulla to – we used to walk to Green Hills because that's where we used, to, we used to like to surf out there, down there. And uh, like today your parents would be saying, no, we'll drop you there and we'll pick you up at – so and so time and did don't talk to anybody and uh, tracking you on the phone. Yeah, like you they've got the phone there. Yeah. Well, we had no phones, of course. But um and you know, here's I don't know, whatever we got wasn't much money, but eat get your lunch somehow and uh, catch a train as well. Um it's funny, Cronulla was a pretty safe joint. Those days at least. I mean yeah. obviously you had the Wanda murder, so it wasn't real cool. But generally speaking, Cronulla's pretty safe. Everyone sort of pretty much knew each other's face. They looked after each other a little bit, like yeah. looked out for each other. Yeah. Maybe not looked after, but looked out. Occasionally you had a few dramas down there at the wall, uh, at Allura there. Yeah, a little territorial back yeah, then. Yeah, I've heard yeah, many stories. Yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I had a few run-ins a few times. But generally speaking, it was pretty good. Do you reckon Cronulla has changed as a joint? Yeah, yeah. It has dramatically changed with the infrastructure and the amount of the volume of people. Money. The money coming in. Um, at, its, at its core, I think it still has that, you know, that strong sense of community, you know, and – it's needed a few things to happen to get to where it is now. And, you know, I think it's nearly 20 years, nearly to almost 20 years since the Cronulla riots, which sort of. Is that long? Yeah, nearly 20 years. I think it was 2005 around then. So the Batuta guys are taking the piss out of it at the moment on uh, Paramount Plus, I think. They've done a series, one of which is a Cronulla riots. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's t- sort of taking the piss out of it. But if you go back to the Cronulla riots, were you around then? Like I was, the, yeah, the, yeah. Do you remember it? I do remember it. I was down there on that day in the morning. And, and was that, I mean, just I'm interested to get your take on it. Don't, you know, you're a born and bred Cronulla boy, surfer, white as a driven snow, very white, you know, like <laughs> blondie, um, which is pretty unusual today in today's society, but not so much in Cronulla. But what was going on that day? Do you remember? Like how, how did you sort of, what was your sense of it? Well, I turned up in the morning. There was, there was the famous text message that went out to obviously thousands of people and I turned up in the morning just to see it was about I'm down there every day surfing or working because I own the surf school. And I was only about, what was I, 24, 25 at the time. And I went down there and I saw Dog Marsh, who's a local pro surfer, really respected person from our area, he lives in France now. And we sort of walked around, we bumped into each other and we both I went, don't know anyone around here. What's going on? Didn't see there was any real agenda or anything other than, you know, um, look up because previously there'd been a, altercation between some people from the um, western suburbs and the lifeguards and that was all about just standing up for what seemed like something that wasn't going to escalate to like it did 
and we just walked up to see what it was about and sort of show a sense of community at some point. And we sort of the only people we knew was one another. So that was, and I was living really close at the time. I just walked home and then, yeah, it was just, 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 it was a bit of a scene all day long until the the alcohol started peeling into it. And then from there, I I, I don't know, can't talk about what happened in terms of the violence, but it definitely escalated. But 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 has that sort of, is there any hangover from that today? I mean, it's a long time ago, but is there any hangover today in Cronulla? or is it, or are the people living in Cronulla so new that they don't even remember it, most of them? It's been like a long time now. So a lot of the locals have moved on from that. A lot of the people that li- have lived in Cronulla, a lot of the people that moved there for the reason and grew up in that community have moved away. You know, when I, when I did the surf, a lot of the people said Cronulla needed this, you know, like we haven't felt this com- sense of community since the grand final. That was the greatest thing that happened since the riots then, you know, when they had... When then the sharks won, obviously it was it was it was mayhem. It was just the happiest place to be, and that that brought everyone together. And it just you know signified what what Cronulla at its core is really about. You know, no matter how many buildings and new people come in, it's it is true core. There, there's that people that care about it, love it, that grew up there, and and you know certain events need to shape it to give it that. What why, why is Cronulla so parochial? Do you think? What is it that? I mean, you got place like Byron Bay. It's a special place to look at. Cronulla is a, a special place to look at. Manly is a special place to look at. But what what is it about Cronulla that you feel that you think you've grown up there that you think is really special about it? And why are people attracted to the joint? I think that it's sort of it's on the outskirts of Sydney and it's always sort of not been left out, but it's a big area. Southern Shire's got nearly half a million people and it's always felt like it's got its own community. It is it's it's got its own identity. And I think people like that. They feel a part of something that little bit different. And like we've got everything where we are there. And I think people just like, it's so beautiful. It's just if you grow up there and spend a bit of time there, you've got everything at your doorstep. The National Park's, you know, a kilometre away on either side. There's one at Cornell. There's one at Bundina. And it's just, it's got everything in its one place. And now within the city. And I think people just, they get trapped in that bubble. I know I do. And it's, I think, um, they find that in such a big area zone, there's these little parts of community that you feel a part of by by being down the beach and connecting with people that way. Yeah, it, I mean, like it's interesting you just say that because I, I remember you talking about the um, national parks. I remember uh, years ago my brother, younger brother who went to school down there, um, rang me up and he said, mate, there's really, I say years ago, a long time ago, I was like 20-something, and he said there's a big swell coming through and he said uh, the waves are coming into Gunnamatta Bay, which is sort of like, on the other side yeah. of on, on the other side of Cronulla the Station, sort of wave, thing, yeah. yeah. And I said, "Oh bullshit!" He said, "No, no, they are. They're serious." He said, "Because that's where he lived out that way." And he went to go there, and he said, uh, "Now you got to come and let's go and have a surf." And uh, we end up catching a we no, we jumped in off the back of I, I don't remember which area, Dolan's Bay, one of those. We jumped jumped in off there. We paddled into the middle of Gunnamatta Bay, and there was a wave that went for like no joke, went for like it felt like went for a hundred meters. Across, the, I don't know if that does that still exist. Yeah, that? it does. It does. It changes with the, the sand. They dredge it out every couple of years, but um, that's a novelty wave that you know when everywhere's blown out across Sydney, everyone comes and gets, still gets their surfing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you, I mean, so you grew up in this sort of. It's a pretty special environment then to grow up. Um, do you feel sort of somewhat blessed? Yeah, totally, absolutely. The, the older I get, the more I, more passionate about it. You know what I mean? I, I've I've lived through, lived there a long time. With, stories that my dad's told me about growing up, how raw it was back then and how it wasn't, it, yeah, just 
the freedom they had back then. And then I still feel that now, you know, you've got to seek it a little bit more and make the effort to go on the adventures and, and take your exercise outside and, and, and challenge yourself. But I, yeah, I absolutely love it. Yeah, because they get me, it's not though sort of the morning of the earth type uh, environment that it was in the 60s and 70s when your dad was around. No. It has changed a lot. Yeah. With that and your community, and your community being the surfing community, um, have you, had, do you think this, the, because when I was growing up, everyone was smoking joints and uh, that was a thing and uh, in the 70s and uh, it was pretty normal to be honest with you, especially in the surfing community. The, the other drugs weren't something that you really had much to do with, but like smoking marijuana was a deal. Yeah. That's, that's what everyone's doing. You have, you, have, you smoke before you go for surf. You, that's, you didn't drink much, or at least we didn't, um, and uh, you're just chilling. But with it came a bit of um, a lot of people got depressed or, I don't know, got a few mental health problems, et cetera. Yeah. Is that a thing today still in the surfing world? Definitely not. No, no, definitely not. There's always those, you know, certain communities and and there's always going to be around to some extent, but definitely not ripe in that in that. So more is it more athleticism? Definitely, today? yeah, definitely. Because it wasn't about athleticism. It's about for the us. healthiness of it, the lifestyle, yeah. the, the everything that's associated. It's not just the act of riding the wave. It's what's associated with the the travel, the outdoors, the fitness, the connection with the ocean. All these things that um we're all aware of that just bring so many more. For, diverse range of people into it. Yeah, it, it seems like that to me looking from afar now that it's much more about, about athleticism and exercise and, and all the other the stuff that's more cerebral. Yeah. But when I was growing up, it was nearly like a counterculture Yeah. for me. Um, and, uh, you know, like it's not rebellious but a little bit rebellious um, or a little bit no, – um, I ride waves – Stuff what you guys are, with, yeah, you know, yeah. like, and and what we do is at night as we sit, like, we travel yeah. somewhere, not just in Cronulla. We were hanging out with guys from Cronulla, but we travel, and uh, you know, wherever we go, we have a campfire, we'd have a few tents, you know, yeah. we go might go south and north, um, and but the culture for us was listen to music on a little tape deck, um, and uh, you know, as I said, the, the joint would get passed around. Uh, we'd have pretty crappy food. I don't know how we survive uh, yeah. n- nutritionally, um, but it seems to me now that surfing's become much not professional, but much more um, structured. Like people eat good food, they drink a lot of water, um, they're really conscious of their their the exercises they need to do in order to surf properly. Yeah, and we just took surf, we just jumped on a board and surfed. Yeah, we never thought to ourselves, well, maybe we got a you know, carry a rock underwater and see how long we can hold our breath for, <laughs> yeah. you know, like uh, yeah. which we probably should have learned how to do that sort of stuff because if, I know a few times I thought it was going to drown, um, in, in, especially down at Coldale. But how did that change? How do you think that change happened? I know you're not a surf historian but like you, you've been around, you know, you've been around with your dad. You've seen a lot of history around surfing, particularly in that environment at Cronulla. Yep. What, was, what were the things that sort of created change? What, why are you different to what your dad was? Just due to the to the resources and the popularity of it as well, like even the difference between when I was growing up and the support I had, I had my family and maybe a coach here or there. If you want to make it as a pro surfer, you got unlimited resources. You know, there's high performance centers, there's a coach at every single beach, there's awareness around every element of surfing, with it down to their diet, down to you know how detailed the equipment is. There's this, there's it's really accessible to tap into that high performance level of surfing. 
Do, do you do the, do you, do you teach high performance in your I do, I have school? and I do, yeah. 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 So what does that mean? What does high performance serve? I mean, are you getting someone prepared for a competition or just someone who can just get out there and carve up? A bit of both really. So high performance, yeah, both for competition if someone's going down that path or it might be their, just their technical skills and improving their technical skills to get them from where they're at to a high performance level so they compete, you know, in their borders clubs or it's a pretty broad term high performance, right? But it's just depending on what level level they're aiming to achieve and what they've got to work on in that sense. But is that the reason why Australia does so well, like on a global basis relative to our size, so well in like on the global surfing scene? It does. It doesn't do as good as it should. Like I, it did have a, a golden we, era yeah, where we were winning yeah. world titles back in the in the eighties with Tom Carroll yeah. and. and those world champions, but we kind of lost that a little bit. Yeah. What, why do you think that is now? I think it was how good our lifestyles are here. You know, when we're not hungry enough. Not hungry enough. Definitely not hungry enough. You look at the Brazilians, and that's they've won, I don't know, the last eight world titles, and they come from, uh, they're hungrier for it. You know, they come, they've got less to fall back on if they don't make it as a pro surfer. It's the worst thing that happens here. You, you go and get a trade and work with your mates and earn some good money and live in a house in the suburbs. Like that's, it's kind of the fallback. So there's not that urgency and that that grit and determination needed for a long period of time. So it's like there's, there's we've got it pretty good and I think that's a little bit detrimental. And I think the camaraderie, I think we lost that a little bit. You know, they're, the Brazilians are down there supporting one another till the end of the event and the Australians are that little bit more way self-indulgent and, more focused on themselves and I to see how important that, I mean, we know how important that is, that community and feeling connected and a part of something can contribute, contribute to high performance. So you can't get to a world title on your own. You're going to need as much support as possible and those little gains you get from having that support of that guy that travels with you or, you know, someone from your home country supporting you is can make all the difference when it comes down to the upper echelon, the best in in the sport. I mean, when you go back to the era like Terry Fitzgerald and those sort of guys, um, and there were girls but less known at the time, but let's say I only know of the guys, um, and you said Tommy Carroll, but like that era, um, I remember that they were all somehow, they, were, they had jobs, everything in their life was around surfing. They'd be shaping boards um, or glassing boards or yeah. something like that. Um, they didn't have, most of them didn't have trades. That was, they they surfed, but they did some other job on the side as opposed to around the other way. Yeah. They had a job and then they did a bit of surfing. Yeah. Um, the, the sort of, and it's like um, money caught up or something or money caught up to Australians in, in relation to those who actually surf and surfing's become a pastime hobby more. Yeah. Before it was like, it was a lifestyle. Yeah. Do you think there's been a, and Cronulla was the one of the, you know, Narrabeen was too, but Cronulla yeah. was one of the biggest um, examples of that. Yeah. And uh, it was the guys that I knew that actually made it, their whole life was around going, uh, riding waves, everything from the moment they woke up to the moment they went to bed. They'd do something, fill in, they'd fill in, fill in their week to make a quid because there was no money in it, surfing at the time. They'd fill in with other jobs, but mostly old jobs. Very few of them were tradespeople. Yeah. Um, now it's around the other way. It's like everyone's got a job and now they do a bit of surfing on the side. Yeah. And that's not going to win you world titles. Definitely not. No. And that's, that's why the Brazilians do because that's their, their whole life is about surfing. They probably don't have any choices, other choices. Yeah, like there's we got do. Not, not as much to fall back on. So know? is that because Cronulla's become affluent then? 
Yeah, I think I think that has to contribute with it for sure. The ease of life, you know, the just yeah, there's like there's <laughs> there's just it's a good life whether you make it as a pro surfer or not. You know, like you're gonna you're gonna have opportunities. They've got less opportunities. Basically, they got to work harder for what they want to get. Okay. Does pro, do, do pro surfers make good money? Like on, on average, I'm talking about now. I'm not talking about the best. On like like depends what good money is. Like how much is good money? Yeah. They, they can make can a living. Make a living? Not like it was ten years ago, but yeah, they can make a living for it. They'd have to make their money work for them to get to the end of their career and and actually, you know, finish their career without having to fall into another trade or do something at the end of it. It's changed a lot in the last twenty years. When I was like, how old am I? I'm forty. So twenty five years ago, I was getting paid fifty, sixty grand a year as a fifteen or sixteen year old. That's unheard of these Lord days, that. unless you're a you're the next prodigy. Oh, they, they don't pay that now to fifteen, no. sixteen year olds. No. Not at all, unless you're the old, you're the prodigy at the top of that. And there would have been three to five of us in Australia getting paid that type of money in being 14 or 15 years old. And and now it's it's, it's pretty rare to be getting in that money. They'll take they'll take the prodigies under their wing, and there might be one or two that are really pushed pushed down that way than rewarded. But yeah, there's there's not as much money as what they're in. They've got to work harder. They've got to get results. It's got to be more consistent. There's only like 10 spots a year to make it onto the world tour, and now. The best surfing in the world is getting done on the tour. There's not as many avenues to go off free surfing, getting paid for your for your marketability or your style of surfing. It's it's they're doing the best surfing on the world tour in some of the best ways. So it's um it's all focused on there. And you've got to be in front of them. You've forgotten about so quickly these days, right? You used to have a magazine for a month before you'd see who was competing and doing their things, but now it's just so instant that yeah. you've got to be relevant. Like you've got to stay relevant. Yeah. So so maybe, maybe the the money, the change in the way it all works is maybe there's much more money or the the money that follows surfing tours is demanding certain types of outcomes as well. And also, you know, as you just said, then Instagram and all those other things are starting to allow anybody in the world to do stuff, yeah. not just people from Cronulla who are near a beach or people from Narrabeen who are near yeah. a beach. So it's sort of opening up the market to a whole lot of people. For sure. And just the speed of video too, surfing so visual that uh, yeah. 10 years ago you – They'd put an edit together. You'd get one every month. There'd be a DVD or a, or a clip would come out on YouTube, Instagram, and not on Instagram, YouTube. And now it's so instant. You know what I mean? So it's got, you've got to stand out. It's just a lot harder to stand out and, and be that value to a company. It's funny, you know. I, I remember I was away when Morning of the Earth was released. Yeah, the movie, but it was released in not in mainstream movies. It was released in um, theaters, like shitty theaters, like down at. Um, Aladala or those sorts of places. And uh, I remember going to this little theatre. It was like it looked like an old church or something. And it was just um, plastic chairs all lined up against each other like that. And it was the joint was full. I was living at um, Manana at the time. Um, Manana Beach is but in front of Manana Beach is like a, I don't know if it's still there, it was a caravan park there. I was living there with two of my mates. And uh, we lived there for three months. And uh um, we went. You were, li- you were living the morning of the earth. It sounds yeah, like. Yeah. No, I was. No, I was. I was in a. Uh, it was. Well, for me, it was such a significant thing. I mean, I, I, it's still one of my favorite albums, even for the music. Yeah. And um, we, we, I remember we were staying in a tent, and we went and watched the morning earth. And those days, to watch a movie about surfing, you'd see literally see one in your lifetime. Like yeah. I'd never seen a movie yeah, before, yeah. like that. And uh, but now you're right. Like so they had the impact, right? There. Oh, totally. They, I was I was sold 100. percent Like to stay, stick with it, and 
trying to all the things that they were doing in the movie. And, uh, you know, we started getting the, my mates in particular got trouble. I had to go to university, so I couldn't do it, but they got the trouble back in that bug and they all started traveling around the place and they ended up in places like Indo and stuff like that and started yeah, going yeah. around and finding all these waves. Yeah. Um, and but today the world's completely different, and uh, everybody can get a taste of this shit. I'm gonna a bit of that, yeah. and, and all of a sudden you you get a whole lot more talented people trying to learn to surf. Like during your era, yeah, much more talent. You know, you, there was only a few people tried surfing when I was around. It wasn't yeah. a you yeah. either had access to the beach, yeah, which means you had to be around Corolla somewhere or yeah. wherever, or you didn't try it. You wouldn't try that. I mean, it's just too hard. Like you know, getting up with surfboard was all too difficult. But now. Anybody can try it. It doesn't matter where they are. They can always get an Uber to the beach, yeah. you know, and uh, and if it looks or glamorous. Or a wave pool. A what? Or to a wave pool. Oh, yeah, great. Or a wave pool. Yeah. Have you been to a wave pool yet? Yeah, I have. Which one have you been to? Went to the Melbourne one. And what's it like? It's good. Yeah. It's good fun. It'll never replace the ocean. No. N- never replace the ocean, but you can get, for, as a training tool, I think it's the ultimate. Get the repetition in without the... About the uh, inconsistencies of the ocean, I think it's that's where I get excited about it for where it'll push surfing with that and the technology as it advances, it'll be a game changer in that sense. Do you, do you put your uh, students into the wave pools? No, I haven't done a trip with my school, but I will, I will utilize the one that's getting made at Homebush for sure. Yeah, okay, yeah. but 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 you would put your your kids. I guess the kids that you're training are they? Yeah, young kids, kids and adults. Yeah, kids and adults. But is it the reason you would go put them into wave pools because of the consistency of the waves? Yeah, you can yeah. just keep. Also, what we're doing as surfers, right? We're as we're seeking improvement. We're looking for repetition any which way we can. So yeah, yeah it's just practice, 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 practice. and that's not guaranteed. Surfing no. every day is different. Yeah, you know, every wave is different. Yeah, yeah. So it's being it's a and good crowded. Lesson. It's a good teacher in that sense, and it's the fact that yeah, you've got to you got to seek that, and that's the way that we train. We as a coach, you're that second eyes for a, your student, and just helping them get the reps in and. Stop them from making stupid mistakes. Yeah, well, in other words, it's become much more professional. Yeah. It's much more structured. Much more structured. Yeah. Compared to when, say, you were coming through. Definitely. Like I was – everyone knew me because I was the eight, nine-year-old that was surfing on his own and that was – there was many kids doing that, you know, even that was, you know, early 90s. But was your dad standing up there saying, hey, Hey, Dad you worked do his this? ass off, so he, he was out there the water towing me around until he knew I was confident enough to just chase my brothers over the hill and – and um, knew that I could handle my own if the surf picked up or got books. I was I used to wait for him at home for him to finish work. He was a builder and would drive and always worked on the North Shore. That's where the money was, I guess. And he would come home and I'd just be waiting for him after school from about the age of eight, just wait for him to get home. And my brothers would already be over the hill, but I wasn't allowed to go because I was a little tacker. I'm not big now, but I was only a mini guy. And um, he'd come home exhausted and take me over and pull me out by his leggy, push me into waves all afternoon. And then... Um, yeah, I clearly remember the day where mum's like, can he go on his own? Because dad was just cooked. And, um, yeah, yeah, I could put board on the head, run over the hill and just never look back, man. I just, I could, one of my fondest memories of, of uh, being told I could independently go surfing. First board, who made it? Oh, I got one of those uh, cool like foamies for Christmas when I was about six. Yeah, they, dad and, used, and you had to be a little to stand up on it. Yeah, you had to be a little. Oh, dad just put his flippers on and take me out when I was that small. But then, yeah, a good time thruster. Still got it. One of my most treasured boards. Stoked. I still kept under that. Yeah. So, what about any of the the local? Um, I, I can't remember their names now. But there was yeah, Jackson. Jackson. Jack. Yeah, yeah like, Jackson. Yeah, the, yeah, that was more. Like, there was Gordon and Smith before. Gordon then. Smith. Yeah, Gordon yeah, Smith. That was before my time. I never. Yeah. But they still around there. But did you? No, did, not when I when yeah. I was growing up. It was Force Nine and Jackson. Yeah, I remember. I got a. I had a a, a, a swallowtail 
twin fin from um, Gordon Smith. Oh, yeah, sick. <laughs> sick. <laughs> they, they probably don't even make them anymore, but I remember having them. I think that is cool. And But, but your boys would have been pretty small. They were tiny. Yeah, yeah but they five, got two, small. Five, I started off with some thick ones, hand-me-downs, and then as I progressed and was ready, I jumped down to some smaller, like four-foot tens and custom-made boards. Wow. Once I started showing some full speed, some skill. yeah, lots of speed, yeah. So I want to. Why apart from having a little mega badger because there's a bit of nostalgia there for me. But uh, I want to know why did you do this uh, major feat more recently? Uh, surfing for forty hours was it? Yeah, record? forty hours and seven minutes and seven minutes. Yeah, you, I'm sure you remember the seven minutes too. If it's a world record. It is a world record. Yeah. Yes. So okay, just take me through. The, for, for, I'm going to ask you why in a moment, but. What does that mean? You've got to jump, paddle out, stay in the water for 40 hours and seven minutes? Yeah. Don't, you, don't, you can't come back in? Well. You can't come back in if you've got to go to the bathroom or something. What happens? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, yeah, totally. So there was um, the rules around it were just based off the two people that had gone for that world record before. And it was about making it a marathon surf. So you had to paddle two from or four away of every 10 minutes. So it was constant movement. Right. You've got to keep going. That. Yeah. You can't just sit there. You can't just sit there and go, oh, yeah, I've been sitting in the water. So it's constant movement and negotiating the waves and, and making decisions and physically moving around. So, um, and the previous world record was 30 hours and 11 minutes. And I, yeah, I did 40 hours and seven minutes because I said I was, Said I was going to do that earlier. I'd have been running. Like I said earlier, I did a marathon. I made a few lifestyle changes and started getting really fit and just like the idea of seeing what's possible. And um, I actually had a surf down in Melbourne in the wave pool. I went on a corporate day. The Barefoot Investor had this corporate day and someone who works for me, his wife is a mortgage broker. She got invited. There's no way she was going. So sent me and her husband down. I was stoked. It was like the first week it opened and we went down all pumped up, got in the water, did two or three hours and everyone there was, you know, from the corporate world, started having beers around 10, 11 o'clock and no one was in the water. So I just asked, can I stay out? So I ended up doing seven hours and riding a hundred waves. And then on the way home, I Googled, what's the, what's the record for the world's longest surf? We went down just for the day and it was 30 hours and 11 minutes. And I thought, oh, I could do, I reckon I could do that. I wonder if and I could do that. And how many waves? Do you have to add a number of waves to it as well? He you have caught, to have caught a number the of previous waves? record of caught yeah. 436 waves. He did. He did, yep. yeah. Josh Enslin, South African guy. So so it's a record is not only the time in the water and and, and, the, and paddling, et cetera, for in and out. Yeah. Well, there's so many also, variables, right? Like with if the surf's big, you're constantly moving, you might not get that many waves. If you're duck diving but you're paddling and trying to maintain your position. In so the it's line. movement. Movement, Movement, yeah. constant movement. Yeah. And uh, and so so could you get out any time? Do you eat? How did you eat? 
Yeah, well, there were some things we had to do because it was an event and we're raising money and there was insurances and councils and other other entities involved. So we had to have a, we did a thing about a 29, I didn't do it. <laughs> My wife and the foundation did it. They did, um, like I think it was 29 page document. It was a pretty unique event, you know, two nights of surfing, one person. So we had to have um, um, some protocols in place for safety. And one of them was um, after a certain amount of time, I think it was 10 or 20 hours, I had to come in and get medically checked, get my vitals checked yep. for the paramedics that were on the beach the whole time. Yeah. And did they have like a, a rubber ducky out there? They did. Of- they were meant to have one in the water, but the yep. surf was too big the first morning, so they had it on the shore ready to go if they needed it as well. Right. And did, what about hypothermia and stuff like that? Did you was, Is that an issue? Was the water cold? The water was really warm. Yeah. It was really warm. It was, it was as warm as warm as Sydney gets. It was um, 23 degrees, I think it right, was. So and I wore a 3-2 steamer the whole time. I was hot. Oh, yeah. oh, wow. I was boiling most of the time. It was a 35 degree day. It was a gorgeous day with big waves. So I was, was more concerned of overheating, dehydration. So how did you, how'd you rehydrate then? We had um, we had a, a plan to have 500, lit- 500 milliliters of water every half an hour. Right. So the lifeguards were out there on their ski when they could get in or they're yeah. out the back. And then when I come in for a medical check, we'd- um, drink, drink the water. Yeah, drink water as well. And Just, did you have like a medical team to- we like, did. I have a, I'm lucky. I've got a friend who's a surgeon at the local private hospital, Karina Hospital, and he's a surfer as well. So I, I did some briefing with him before we did it and went and saw a dietitian. We had a full plan in place. And that's so unlike me. I've done some <laughs> adventures where I just put a backpack on and say, see you to the wife and go for a night and just test myself, do things like that. So to have it, I learn a lot, you know, being structured and doing that. I reckon without bringing the doctor in and doing it properly, I'd, I don't know if I would have got to, the, to my goal of 40 hours. I reckon I would have got the world record, but I don't think I would have been able to kick on that extra 10 hours and do, Smash do that 40 hours. Yeah. So you, you, you go all night. Yeah. So all night. just just to me, explain to me exactly whereabouts in Cronulla did you do so that? So the alley. We chose the oh, yeah. alley. Okay. Yeah. Just explain exactly where the alley is again. The alley is like at the bottom of the Kingsway at Cronulla. So yep. if you drive down to Cronulla towards the beach, there's a big set of lights and that's the first break in front of you. A couple of restaurants and the Esplanade line it. And um, it's kind of the centre of Cronulla. A little wave there called the alley where I grew up surfing. And a lot of history with that wave too. People used to hang down the alley and outside Joe's Milk Bar and it's a pretty iconic spot for Cronulla. And at night, were you worried about sharks? Not at all. No. But Cronulla's, Cronulla's, the point is, and I've seen sharks out there, in the past, but um, Cronulla itself, the where you're talking about, it's not a lot. I don't know of ever being sharks there in the past. There probably are sharks there, but I don't remember anything sort of serious going on. I've I've surfed there for what, 30, 35 years, and I've probably seen one shark. Like definitely seen one. I probably got scared off a few times, but definitely seen one shark, and that was right out on the reefs. There's some pretty world class waves out on the headland near yep. Cornell, and I surf there a lot, and I've seen some some sharks you wouldn't want to see again. Definitely. Yeah, so, but d- during the nighttime, I never liked surfing at night because I just thought it was a bit spooky. But what, what was what was going through your head? Like, was there any point well, where you went, oh, Jesus, nah, this well, the is first, weird. Well, the first night, we started at 1 a.m. And it was- um, So you started at 1 a.m.? Started at 1 a.m. Started at 1 a.m. And um, it was way bigger than I thought. And you got a f- the forecasting website, expected to drop off, but- Mother Nature's Mother Nature. And you it. can't see the waves at night, can you? I mean, no, we had spotlights. We had right. big lights, like big commercial lights, two of them that were shining on it, but the surf was bigger than expected. We did a test the week before. I got to surf out the alley with my boy. He's 11. We had a really good night just testing lights, getting the angles right. And um, But when we got to the day, the, it was 
the surf was two foot bigger than we kind of expected it to be, which means it was breaking out further. So in terms of sharks, I was more focused on, you know, getting through the waves and getting my wave count and and um, sticking to my job is what I could, that I had at hand. And um, yeah, that was, that was a bit, that was pretty frustrating because I expected to, I had this vision in my head that I'd be paddling out with my mates. So as part of the water security, my friends were, just so for anyone that had their first day could come out and be. So they're allowed to sort of accompany Come you. accompany me in the water. So I was picturing high five on my mates. Can you talk to them? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, high five to my mates and having a good, good time as I set off for this, to achieve this goal. But it was, it was five, six foot straight close out to, you know, 10 second period. It was constant waves. It was hard work. I, we estimated I did about between 350 and 400 duck dives before the sun came up on that wow. first morning. So I was working a lot harder than I anticipated. Were you exhausted? I was cooked by the time the first sunrise came up. And what, did you was, do? what were you thinking to yourself, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to make it? No, no, never. Never thought that for a second. I thought this is really going to make me earn it. So I was in a, a place like a seven, eight-hour surf is, a, is, is pretty taxing. Mm. Doing that many duck dives is, is another level. And, yeah, it was. I was just at a, a – in, a, in the pain cave a lot earlier than I was expecting to. So that was a little bit of frustration. And so I, what do you do when that happens? I mean, what, what do you, what, what, what does Blakey say to himself? What, what, how do you manage that, um, as you said, put it in the pain cave? I mean, how do you manage that uh, so you don't get overwhelmed? I, I think it's drawing on past experiences. It's like it, it, it takes more than just a bit of self-belief, you know. I um. I put it down to the whole team. It's being something that I've never manifested and thought about like I had before. So I was in these moments and no matter how bad, no matter how sore my eyes were, and they were sore from going under so many ways, even by that first sunrise. Yeah, the salt. I mean, the salt and just and my skin too, you know, yeah. like you're going in and under out of the water. It's um, pretty taxing on the skin. Um, through that whole process, I, I felt like I'd been there before. You know, I felt like I'd, I'd, I trusted the process, like I'd never trusted anything in my life that no matter what it threw at me, I was, I was going to get through it. So even from, I wasn't, wasn't expecting to have to sort of be, or I wasn't expecting to be in those moments until a lot longer, you know, maybe after the world record, but that hit earlier and it just made me think, well, it's really going to make me earn this. I'm not riding a mini mail in Waikiki. I'm surfing five, six foot closeouts in Sydney and and still managing and and actually smashing the, my my goal of the amount of waves I wanted to ride and and continuing on. Were you able to sort of, uh, are you able to in terms of the record, um, sort of just avoid um, uh, um, paddling out through the, the break and go maybe go around the break? I mean, could you? Uh, not, not that first morning. No. no. Like the swell dropped okay. off. It's all played out perfectly. You know, it went really good. I really earned that first that first day. Even when the sun came out, uh, the waves were still four or five foot. Like ideally, if you're going for a world record of surfing for the longest, you'd want it in Bali on a two-foot shore break, catching waves and barely going under the water. Like you're still going to achieve, you know, achieve the, the world record. But I definitely did it in the most authentic way that I'm, I'm proud of. And I wanted. It wasn't to, an easy. Wasn't it wasn't an easy. No, nah, it wasn't easy. Like people say, oh, you got perfect waves for it. I'm like, I definitely didn't see the first 24 hours of that surf. You know where. I was duck diving so much and had to work hard. I ended up riding 707 waves. Wow. So that equates to a wave every three minutes, 24 seconds. And the surf was four to five foot. How come you didn't seize up like your body physically, like muscular wise, like especially your lower back, so you're arching your back when you're laying on the board? I think I'm as 
the most conditioned you could be for it. I've been a life the surfer my whole life. I teach it. I've, I still love it. I do it in my spare time. I'm down there coaching people. I think that's something that I never had any doubt with. That never even crossed my mind of whether I was fit enough. And the, the unknowns to me were what's going to happen to your skin, your eyes, and I didn't know anyone that surfed longer than ten hours. And there was nothing to draw from, so it was just again accepting that I was going to go through some pain and I'd, I'd, I'd get through to the on the other side. Anything lasting? Because I know when Ned Brockman he sat in that chair told me that you know he had some major issues after his run from Perth to Bondi, um, Cottesloe to Bondi. Um, did you have any major in- injuries after this? Like something that sort of stuck with you? Not really. Like I've still got this sort of physical and mental fatigue. I train a lot, do a lot of adventures. And I still feel like I'm not 100%. I can't quite put my finger on what it is, but I think there's this little, there's something still a little bit missing, you know, that, that I've got to replenish somehow that will take a bit of time to get through it. Obviously my shoulders, is, uh, uh, they're, they're fine now, but for about six weeks it felt like I just had a 10-hour surf every time I paddled out. You know, I'm surfing every day and and I, um, yeah, I, I, I feel like, even still now, there's, 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 there's a sense of, you know, I'm not quite at my, at my where I want to be with my mental space and my, my physical ability. Are you a bit mad? Like, uh, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, you're one of those mad bastards who uh, just do crazy shit because you can and, and you won't let it beat you. I mean, is that part of your mentality? No, I, I think it's just seeing what's possible, just loving that question to myself, like seeing what I'm capable of. Uh, I, I don't think seeing myself as anyone special and I think, I know from what I've been through to get to this point that anyone can do it and I like doing it because it shows people they can. We've got us inside of you. One, you've got to want to do it and be prepared to do the hard work that gets you to these points. And The prep, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like I'd, I'd surf, you know, surf that same spot. Like I was saying earlier, I felt like I'd been there before. When I got to the really hard stages of the surf, I my body was moving. I wasn't thinking. I was just completely connected with the environment around me, and it was it was it was trust in the process. It was it was a very unique experience that I that I was going through, and everyone deserves to feel it, feel that at some point. It's just it's amazing. I, I I see you raise a lot of money for charity and it's for mental health. Yeah. Um, was that part of the driver, or the or the part of the thing that made you stay? Yes. Um, my dad took his own life. 10 years ago um, and that was one of the driving forces to do something significant in memory of him. I'd actually, I was planning a run, doing a run from Corumban to Cronulla because it sounded good yeah, yeah, and I see, see. wanted to run along the coast, connect with people I used to surf with and make it about community and and support and do a run. I was going to do 50Ks a day and then that idea was kind of blowing my head and I mentioned it to my brother who's on the board at the Chumpy and he goes, oh, yeah, we'll support that, not that interested in it. And then I said, I've got this other idea. I told him about the wave pool. And he goes, that's you. That's what you're meant to do and, and be. And, and I thought, he's, he's completely right. I'm a surfer and I want to I wanna do something authentic and true to myself. And, and it just evolved from that with support of them on my wife and family. And that I, it just evolved from that. From what that do you think your dad would think uh, seeing you do that? Like uh, given that he was probably one of the ones who, you, you know, used to take you down there and pull you out through his leg rope out yeah. to the ways when you're eight, seven or eight years of age after you'd spent a hard day. He'd spent a hard day working on the tools on the North Shore trying to earn a quid to pay for the mortgage that you guys lived and in. Five boys. That- <clears throat> five of them, yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. So, um, you know, and, uh, and he's got a little grommet there, uh, 
Blakey, like he's probably saying, Dad, come on, take me out, take me out, take me yeah. out. I don't want to go home, I don't want to go home. Yeah. Anything he would have felt about what you did? I think he would have been extremely proud and I think he would be the one person that knew that I was there. Well, there was never a doubt I wasn't going to get it done. Seeing the determination I showed, chasing my big brothers from when I was a, a tiny little grom and wanting to be out in the big surf and, you know, never having that fear just just to, to the, for the love of it. Did well. your dad always believe in you? Yeah, definitely. It, like through not just when you first started, like but through school competitions and, you know, you, I guess you were a schoolboy. Did you go on the uh, schoolboy competitions? Yeah. You know, like surf your school? Yeah. Where did you go to? Which school? I went to Cronulla and Woolaware. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, you surf for Woolaware and the schoolboys yeah, competitions? Yeah, both, both, both those schools, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And when your I was dad there. always believed in you? He did. Yeah. He did. He was, he was quite yeah. different to me. He didn't talk as much. He was very, um, very calm and and – yeah, he was he was very humble. So, and I was more hypo and wanted to prove to my bigger brothers and surf and catch a million waves, and I was always right into into that. It was my singular focus, and I think he, he loved that because he got so busy as a as a you know in his early twenties, having busy having babies and working his ass off. So, I think he just saw that I genuinely loved it and, and loved that. He never put any pressure on me. There was never an inkling from him, not a question or a doubt or anything about why I was doing it. He just wanted the best for me and and. That's translated for me and my boys too, for sure. How does how does uh, you know your father taking his own life? I mean, do you mind talking about it for a second or two? Sure. I, I, I just no, sure. Um, was he depressed, or what? What do you think was the issue? Yeah, I, I definitely suffering from anxiety and depression, and and general wellness. You know, like he worked his ass off. As I told you before, we had five boys. There was a period of 10 years from when he was 30 to 40 around there where he worked seven days a week, be working in the North Shore, come home and do his own jobs, the renovations on the houses that we bought in Cronulla and Carringbar. And, I mean, it's just reflecting on that, it's just crazy, you know, going through the stress of that with five boys and, you know, now being a parent myself and a small business owner and just knowing what he's been, what he's been through, that that, that's 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 taxing, you know. And then continuing on and um, working for himself, and you know, through my own personal evolution since he's passed away, and learning more about myself and questioning, you know, um, you know, becoming more self-aware. I look back and and think of some things he that he he missed out on, you know, like looking after himself. And he was obviously a very self selfless man that put his family first and to a point that it was detrimental to his own mental health. So he was cooked? Yeah. Basically, physically then become yeah. mentally cooked. Yeah, had sleep apnea too, was, wasn't was sleeping properly. He went to the doctors and was and got tested overnight and was woke up 150 times that night Whoa. and stopped breathing. So he was and still a 60-year-old man working five to six days a week, you know, and trying to still trying to get ahead. You know, they've always supported me and my four brothers and helped us financially and just amazing parents but selfless to the point where, you know, it was uh, it obviously took a toll on his mental health. He doesn't want to hang around anymore. I don't yeah. see anything wrong with it. I mean, I, I know it's a bit of a selfish act in that in that you know you, you affect a lot of people. But from you know, like if you know, I, I'm looking from afar. I've, it obviously, hasn't happened to me, and not obviously, but it hasn't happened to me as a a kid looking at his parents. But but equally, I, I take the view that um, people are entitled to be selfish at some stage in life if that's what they want to do. To make themselves, you know, it's about time. Sometimes, sometimes it's just time. You know, I don't want to live like this anymore. Yeah, 
and I don't find it to be a selfish act. Some people say it is, but I don't find it to be a selfish act because at some stage in your life you have to do something that's for you. Yeah. Especially when you spend your whole life doing something for everybody else, like yeah. you're saying your dad did. Yeah. Just make sure you and your brothers, you know, and your mum and everyone, everyone's all well looked after. Um, and I'm sure he felt stuck, you know. I'm yeah. sure he felt stuck in his situation and working so hard still and, you know. And what effect did it have on you then? Did you say, hey, wow, God, Dad, what have you ever done? Like, you know, because obviously you're closer I've been man. through every emotion since it's happened, you know. There's been times where obviously deep level of sadness that you get confused about because it hangs around for so long and, you know, you learn eventually that that sadness is it's natural. If you love and care about someone so much, it's 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 natural to, to feel that way and, 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 and grieve it and there's nothing to be embarrassed about there at all. It's just that connection you have with someone and, and respect. So, yeah, and then I've been frustrated. I've been, like, you know, through my own things, you know, being a young father, small business, you know, that's relying on the weather and that can be frustrating, these uncontrollables and being the best husband and dad I can be to my beautiful boys and being there for them as much as I could because my dad was so busy working. And we loved him and wanted just wanted time with him. And we did get it. Yeah, we've got great memories with him, but even more would have been better. <laughs> yeah. And no money. He's he, you know, I wouldn't want a cent. I don't want anything to do with that at the time and the and his presence was, you know, because he was calm and mellow. It, it was just always was really grounding to be around him. So and how has that inspired you then? I mean, because I mean, at the end of the day, you don't want anything to be a waste. So what especially someone taking their life, um, what do you f- feel like y- you've been inspired to do or got from that, apart from doing the, the 40 hours, 40 hours and seven minutes, 70 minutes or seven minutes? Seven. Seven yeah, minutes. Seven. Apart from that, um, what have you learnt from that uh, in relation to, say, your own relationship with your own kids and your missus? Well, we touched on it before, but it's just about putting yourself first. When And when you're the best version of yourself, you deliver yourself better to your wife, to your husband, the wife or husband, your kids, your community, your business and that has the that's where the that's where the, you have the ripple effect, you know, where you can see that you're pursuing a, a better quality of life for yourself, then you turn up better every single day. And my dad was so selfless that he didn't see that or wasn't aware of those things, you know, like in his generation and in your generation, there wasn't any talk about wellness. There wasn't no. those things. It's getting more and more common, and it's almost saturated. But yeah, there's good messages. There's good messages amongst it, but it's just. That, that key message, you know, like if I look after myself and I'm fit and healthy and feel good within me, I can, I can show, up, show up for my boys, show up for my wife. And- it's only like to me for 40 hours and seven minutes and the 700-odd waves and, um, and everything you did in the event is nearly a sideshow because for me, now they got to know you and talk to you, because um, um, you raised a lot of money for charity too, by the way, for mental health. It's more to me... Just from talking to you, it's a lot more about uh, your dad, the selflessness of your father, the lessons you learned from him taking his own life, um, you becoming more self-aware and more not selfish but doing things for yourself to make yourself the best version of you can be Yeah, to inspire your own kids and others. That seems to be the main show. Yeah, well, I, right? I think yeah, that's what I've learned along the way. You know, you that's where you have the effect on people. You know, you show people what's possible. And that's a question I've asked myself, you know, and not enough people ask it for themselves, you know, but putting that extra hard work and 
not limiting ourselves to what you really want to do and, and be in your life, you know. And I um, I think that's the, the message here, you know. If we, become, we do become more self-aware and look after ourselves, we can, we can do some amazing things. What would you say to someone who's maybe a surfer who's probably smoked too many joints maybe or is <laughs> just feeling a bit shitty about their life and not feeling great? Yeah. And, but as someone who has aspirations and, uh, and dreams but doesn't feel so good, mm. what would you say to them, to themselves? What would you say to them? Say so to be honest with yourself, you know, know that, know that you're worthy of, of, of living a better existence and, and you've got to be honest and know that there is hard work ahead to get there but it's definitely worth it, you know. Everyone deserves to feel awesome. I keep saying that. It sounds so cheesy but. No, it's not cheesy. I, I, In context it's not cheesy. Yeah, I, I, I believe that and and it doesn't just fall into your lap. You've got to, you've got to go after it. You've got to seek the adventure and, and look at it as a challenge and when you see progress in your life, that's where it keeps it interesting. When most people get stale and bored or stuck in something, there's no progress. It doesn't seem like there's any progress anywhere so it can be in any aspect of their life, of career or a sport or a new hobby or skill. And it's sort of that vulnerability they need to have first up and then that sort of something new. Like a, lot of, like a lot of my friends and people I know that have reached out since doing this and even before where I'm always challenging myself, like, oh, I like what you do, and it just shows them that what's possible, like you don't have to be. Like I, I'll say these names again, but Paul Gallen or Mick Fanning, yeah. You, yeah, yeah. You, you can be Blake Johnson or parent with two kids and make that extra time for yourself to achieve these goals and 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 that's how you inspire people, you know, along the way. That's very really interesting you because what you, you just you just said on something really important. A lot of people look at Mick Fanning or, or Gal, um, Paul Gallen, and think, oh, I'm never going to achieve that. But what you've done is you've you've sort of democratised it. You've sort of said, hang on, I've, I've done something like that, like, you know, you play State of Origin or do a mix done, but... But still, you did something. You you hold a world record because you thought you could. Yeah, and you did. Yeah, and that's a pretty important lesson. Yeah, especially if you're feeling a bit shitty about yourself. But even if you're not, yeah, and you're just looking for a bit of guidance or a little bit of inspiration. Yeah, is that where you see yourself? Is that what you've done? You've sort of brought it down to, to democratization. You brought it down to the lowest common denominator. I'm Blakey Johnson, a Blake from Canada, married, couple of kids. You know, I've always I'm a surfer. But I can do this. Well, unintentionally. Like I've always been someone that's been compassionate and caring and kind. And when you're younger, you don't know where that goes. In business, it can be detrimental to, to your success and stuff as well. But I've, I know now that through things I've done personally for myself and through people reaching out and, and the effect it's had, that, that that's what my purpose is, you know, to help, to help people realise their potential. And, you know, when you see progress and and set goals and go after certain things that you become a better version of yourself along the way. And that's that's inspiring to anyone. And be patient about it. Yeah, definitely. Let it roll out. Let it roll out. And things don't happen. You know, that world record was 20, 25 years of surfing and spending yeah. time down that beach for it to all fall into place. It wasn't just, oh, I thought of an idea and I'm a surfer and I want to get famous. It was, it's bigger than me. Yeah. And it's going to help a lot of people. And that's what made it so easy to to know that I was going to get to the end, you know, I envisioned that. And actually it was the first time that I've like, been, been a pro surfer and in sport and visualised things and pictured myself winning contests and doing this stuff. But this, with the world record, 
I'd never embodied it like I did. Like I'd, I'd run every morning and I'd run barefoot past the alley where we did it and just envision this massive crowd. And I was like, kind of at the start, sort of start giggling at myself, going, oh, as if I was going to be there, no one's going to give a shit. And I'm going to do this thing anyway and do it for mental health and do it in the name of my dad and prove to myself that I can do do what I seek out to achieve and be authentic with it, you know, not just talk about it. And that was a big part of why I did it too. I've said it, I'm going to fucking do it. No, no, I think it was, I actually think it's fantastic. I actually like your reasons for it too. I have one more question for you. Yeah. Did you grow that beard during that 40 hours? Because <laughs> it looks like an old, yeah, looks like some uh, old salty dog, like yeah, it's a beauty. Like uh, have you always had a beard like that? No, it's, it's been like three years in the three, making. Oh, three years, oh, wow. When I started running a lot and starting doing ultra marathons and, and those things, I just, I was like, here it is. It's just, it's a part of me. <laughs> What's it like when you're serving though? Does it get all wet and sort of, um, do you put a, like a, no, nah, it just, just flows in the wind, man. It, it, it just, it, it just. It's really cool. Like, it's really cool. I mean, and, and not many people can pull it off. You do. Ah, cheers. Blakey Johnson, thanks very much. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio production by Jessica Smalley. Production assistants, Jonathan Leondis and Simon McDermott. This is a Mentored Podcast.